This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. The land on which I am lucky enough to raise my son always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Twenty-seven doesn't sound that young, but definitely in my circle, <laughs> I was the only one at that at that point who was even contemplating how do I do this and this. It's really hot. It was summer, and I had mastitis, and you know, just this whole everything was just a mess. And I just knew that I needed this job. So everywhere we went in New York, we were just popping into change rooms, and she would have to like pretend to be pulling me clothes from the rest of the store while I changed. I like frantically used a hand pump in the, in the change rooms. You'd start out with lots of energy and then by the end, Belf and the other editors who also had children, you know, we'd be, you'd see a baby on the street and just burst into tears and you have to pull it together to go to like, you go to events all day, to shows all day, then you usually have a dinner and that would start very late and then you'd have to edit the magazine remotely through the night and then FaceTime your children in the morning. Chili's evolution through the show has been really interesting because she was almost like just a bit player at the beginning. And I think now she's become such a, a significantly unique portrayal of motherhood, of modern motherhood, in that she is really open about her fears of failing, like we all are. She feels guilty. She gets exasperated and she needs 20 minutes away from her kids. Justine Cullen is the editor-in-chief of InStyle magazine. And if, like me, you've been a devoted consumer of Australian magazines sometime over the past three decades, there's a good chance you've poured over some of her stories. For the likes of Girlfriend, Marie Claire, Dolly, Shop Till You Drop and Elle. Her formative magazine years were during those heady days. Long lunches, fabulous parties, luxurious travel... And she's seen it all. The move to digital, the closure of countless iconic titles, and the ever-shrinking budgets. Now, if you think Justine's professional life sounds colourful, her personal life makes her story kaleidoscopic. Four sons, three dads, and bouts of single parenting. All while navigating big jobs, international fashion shows, and becoming a published author. Her youngest is four, her oldest is 18, and her life is full. Here, she takes us back to the start. From falling pregnant to 27 and thinking her career was over, to putting Chili Healer on the cover of a magazine, and all of the ebbs and flows that came in between. I'm Lucinda with a nasally voice from daycare. This is Ready or Not, and here is the iconic and intelligent Justine Cullen. Justine Cullen, as I said to you when we logged on to this Zoom, I'm actually a bit starstruck and I'm very stoked to be interviewing you. Can you please start by introducing yourself and your family? Yeah, that's really nice of you to say. Thank you. I'm Justine Cullen. I'm the editor-in-chief of InStyle magazine and the chief content officer of our publishing company, True North. And I have a husband, Hayden, and four children, four boys actually, um, aged from 18 to three, Milo, Iggy, Scout, and Odie, all dogs' names. And what I've heard actually about boys is that you should just run them around. So I love that they've got dogs' names. <laughs> yeah. 
So you have worked at Girlfriend Mag. You've had a stint in London, Marie Claire, Dolly, Shop Till You Drop, Elle, Jones Magazine, and now in style. You've had the sorts of jobs that Nigel tells Andy a million girls would kill for. Can you tell us a bit about your career today? Yeah, I mean, I'm coming up to November this year will be my 30th year in magazines, which wow. is the sort of, I don't know, do I get some sort of watch or I don't think I get anything, but <laughs> um, but it's the sort of anniversary that you just imagine. I mean, you, I, you never quite imagine yourself being in an industry for that long or, you know, it's crazy. And I think somewhere in my head, like most people, you always feel a bit like the ingenue. Like I started in magazines straight out of high school had every intention of going to uni, but got offered a job because I've been doing lots of work experience. So I got offered my the job at um, Girlfriend Magazine. And that was kind of a funny experience because I was a teenager working at a teen magazine. So, you know, all of the kind of advice that I was giving was fairly useless, I'd say. All of the, you know, any of the writing that I did, I wasn't coming from a place of wisdom. I was like right in there with it. And, um, and I, I sort of intended, I thought I'd do it for a while and then maybe go to uni and start my career properly but then one thing led to another and I never did that so um after girlfriend I moved to London I worked for the BBC at a fashion magazine that they had there called the clothes show which, which was just incredible to work for the BBC um although to be honest I mean I talk about working for the BBC and how amazing it was but it was amazing because it had a gym and a cafe <laughs> <laughs> absolutely love that gym you know, it was a like, highlight <laughs> had a wine bar you know that's what I remember we are talking many, many, you know, decades ago now, but that was incredible. And um, I worked with some amazing people there. And then I moved home. I worked on a magazine called B, which was a, an English magazine, kind of set up to compete with Cleo and Cosmo. It didn't last very long. So I worked on the launch and, and I got out pretty quickly um, and went to Marie Claire, where I was beauty editor for a long time, beauty director there. Um, you know, much of my career was spent in beauty because back then you you had this idea that all the all the beauty editors went on to be the editors. So you know, you got to shoot and and you got to write and you got this excellent education in the business side of magazines because all of the advertisers came from beauty. So you met all the CEOs and the marketing managers and you really understood the kind of the nuts and bolts of, of that engine room. And then also you got to live a really nice life. So all my friends were beauty editors and we would go to these beautiful events every day and, um, you know, have these incredible experiences together. So I ended up doing that for quite a long time because it was just, I think it was about 14 years in total that I was a beauty editor, just because it's a lovely way to live. And then I went to Dolly and I was deputy editor there. I'd always wanted to go back to teen. I think teen magazines, you know, it's a pity that they don't exist anymore. We probably need them more than ever, to be honest. But I just think that that intimacy, that that dialogue that they have with their audience was so amazing, so unreal. The way that you know you could create a hugely famous person out of nothing, and um, and and just really kind of you know you were their best friend. You were their maybe older, smarter, cooler aunt if they couldn't talk, speak to their mother. It was an amazing category of titles, and Australian teen magazines were exceptionally good. You know, really world class. So I had always wanted to go back and was thrilled to do that. And then I went to Shop Till You Drop and and that was, again, a, you know, a really interesting title for the time. It was the noughties. It was a time of, you know, Lucky Magazine had existed um, in America and it was a whole new category of, of 
what we called magalogs, where, you know, it was it was very much just about what to buy and curation. But I think that what we did at Shops You Drop that was so interesting was that we really gave it heart and humor and we made it, I think, much more meaningful than it probably, you know, had the right to be. You say a lot of people actually remark on how amazing that magazine was compared to perhaps some more intelligent or more influential ones. Exactly. Like so many people will say to me, oh my God, Shops You Drop was my favorite magazine. Or I'll be, you know, I'll be in a meeting now with um, a luxury brand, an international luxury brand, and the marketing manager will say to me, oh my God, secretly Shops You Drop was my favorite magazine ever. I think it played a real role. And it was very much of the time, you know, I mean, I left Shop before it closed, but it was, it, it had to close at the time that it did. It, it was absolutely right for that decade and that era. And, you know, the Misha Barton, Nicole Ritchie kind of time. And then there was probably, you know, once the internet existed, there was no real role for it anymore. But of course, I mean, I do have a habit of getting out of things right before they go, which is uh, which some is lucky probably a, good, a good lesson in the media and magazine industry, especially. Lucky timing, I think. I had gone to, I went to Elle magazine to launch Elle in Australia after it, it had been out of this market for about a decade and had always been my favorite magazine. And it was the first place I'd ever interned. It was, there were many, many reasons why I um, was super excited to go to Elle and, and to have the opportunity to launch it, you know, to be able to create it. And Elle has this, I don't know how many, there were, I think, 42 international editions of Elle when I launched, but I'm sure there's, wow. I don't know if there's more or less now. But they have this interesting philosophy of like the spirit of the magazine needs to be the same, but we understand that your market's different, that your the audience will be different than that, you know, just generally you will speak in a different way, that the fashion will look different, the brands are different. So you have a lot of freedom. And um, I feel so lucky that I was able to do that and now do it twice within style. But yeah, so it was it was an incredible, incredible opportunity to be able to take a magazine that I loved, put together the team of my dreams and and make something that we felt was really missing in the market. Because at that time you had Vogue and Bazaar, which were very luxury focused, very much focused on the brands and the designers. And then you have magazines like Marie Claire, which were a little older, a little more earnest. I, I wanted to create something that had a real sense of humor that was very entertaining, very, that very much felt in the zeitgeist. You know, I'm the kind of person who... I'm, I'm media obsessed. Like, you know, I wake up in the morning and I'm just on a hundred sub stacks straight away and I go to bed and I'm looking at Feedly and or, or every post that I can imagine. And so that's how my brain works. I'm super interested in politics and in food and in lots and lots of different things. Just because I'm into fashion doesn't mean that's all I care about or women's issues are just women's issues. You know, I'm super, I, I think that our brains work differently these days. So to have so most of the magazines that I work on will take on more than just, I guess, what's on the front cover, what it's selling. And that's very much what Elle was for its time. And then I left there because, you know, it was getting tougher and tougher in that market. And and I went to Jones, which was the David Jones magazine. So I went to an agency that looked after all of the all of the content for David Jones, including making a, a fashion magazine. And so that was a really interesting experience in Learning about a complete, it was still what I did. I was still doing what I loved, but in a completely different world. I had real budgets, for example. But then I also had <laughs> five million people telling me what I could and couldn't do. So, you know, there were benefits and there were there were pluses and minuses, but an incredible learning experience. And I, you know, I've said many times since that I think it really taught me how to be a better editor because when you're in an, on the agency side, you have to justify every decision that you make. Mm. Whereas you know, in consumer, it's very much, you know, it's not a democracy. It's one person who can just be like, 
I just feel like everything this month should be green. <laughs> like everything's green. Like so, you know, but to have to like kind of validate every single page and for it to all have its reason to be there and to have to back it up with real data and insight was a, a new experience and one that we've bought into bought into the process at InStyle and I think makes a lot of sense for how the world works today. But so I spent a few years there and then another, you know, consumer came calling again for me. And what I, what I really, really missed and what I think, and there were two things that I really missed that I learned about my when I was at agency that I didn't know. One was that creative freedom is a huge driver for me, particularly at this point in my career. I've done it long enough now. I'm not really interested in, I, I, I want to make something that I'm excited by every month, every page. So that means a lot. And I didn't, I wouldn't have even been able to tell you that that meant something to me before. I didn't know that that was a driver. And then the second thing is that I really missed having that dialogue with the audience myself. I missed having that interaction and creating something that felt like a community rather than we, I think we still did that to a degree at Jones, but it wasn't my community. It was, it was mm-hmm. the David Jones community. It's the, it's the brand that you're working on. It belongs to them and it's their conversations that they're having. But I missed having that direct access to women and what women want and, and being able to kind of, I guess, start a cultural conversation or start a bigger conversation with them that way. So when um, the opportunity came to come back to consumer through InStyle and some of the other titles that we'll soon be launching at True North, I couldn't really resist. I thought that stage of my life was over, but then as soon as it came up, I was like, absolutely, I'm in. And it's been an amazing wild ride. What's like having a career in an industry that has changed so much? What pressures does it put on you to, as you say, like know when it's time to move on or to think about you before a publication that might be gone the next year? Yeah, I mean, I've been through everything at, in my career. I was there for the beginning, like the heady kind of days. Well, it wasn't the beginning, obviously, magazines have been around for, for many years. But in the, say, the 90s, when I started, you know, it was still very much long lunches and decadent trips. You'd go on fashion shoots where you'd have to shoot, you know, be there for a week and a half and you'd shoot four times or something like now I go for two days Amazing. and I shoot four times, <laughs> you know. Um, so I was there for that and then I kind of became the editor. I became the editor of Shop in 2008. So that was GFC. I was thinking, oh, my God, what have you done? You, said, you know, you come to a shopping magazine. But I think, I think one thing that I'm probably, if I've got a skill in this area at all, it's probably being able to feel the moment and meet Mm. the audience where she is and so I've always managed to adapt the titles or to feel like I'm on the right side of whatever those decisions are so yes it's been interesting at L we started with a budget that was up here because we were the new exciting kid on the block and everybody wanted to put everything into it and all the all the marketers in the company were involved and it was exciting and then as the landscape changed that's gradually cut and you lose staff sat across the table and way too many redundancies and I would like to remember and that's really tough, particularly when you've handpicked people to be part of a team and you've brought them along this ride and had them drink the Kool-Aid and then things cut. So things got really hard. And one of the reasons that I had left Elle, I, I didn't ever intend to leave. I would have loved to have been there forever. But the editor of Harper's Bazaar, who's a very good friend of mine, had resigned. And so they asked me to run both magazines but cut the, cut the team in half. And I was pregnant at the time and I just couldn't do it. I just... These are my my babies, and and I just couldn't bring myself to go through that process. And then the agency job came up at the same time, so I was lucky I had an exit. The industry has changed so much, and I think the skill in being able to stay a part of it is is to 
anticipate those changes and to be constantly being creative and thinking about how you can how you can make them work for you. So for example, part of my business model now at InStyle, everyone only sees InStyle, but actually we have a huge custom content business behind us that um, my team, the whole InStyle team works on content for brands as well that you never see. So we, we just made a magazine, for example, for um, a shopping center in Queensland. So, you know, there, there's lots that's happening and that is how we can make the publishing model and a consumer publishing model work in 2023. You have to evolve. You can't stay stagnant. I think one of the problems with magazines is that we stayed stagnant for way too long. So you had your first son at 27 and at the time, I think you thought it might derail your career, but obviously it hasn't after what we've just heard. But can you tell us a bit about that time in your life? Yeah, well, I'd just gone to Dolly and I was super excited to go there and um, I fell pregnant. It was a surprise. I think I had only been there three months or something. So I definitely wasn't eligible for any mat leave or anything like that. And, you know, I was deputy. So I was at an interesting stage of my career where things were starting to move. I, I sort of left beauty, but I wasn't quite successful enough or accomplished enough to think that people would wait around for me. And, you know, and I definitely wasn't financially in a position where I could just take a year off and work out what to do. So my thinking around that time was, I guess what I'll, I have to do here is go freelance. So I went freelance really early in the pregnancy so that I could establish a kind of career for myself. And I was really lucky because my boss at the time was Mia Friedman and Mia just sort of ensured that of all the magazines that she worked for, that I was getting lots of work. So I think she probably had put the hard word onto editors to make sure that lots of work was coming my way. But also I was one of those people who are not particularly precious. I'm quite happy to be given you know, I would write a story for, say, Cosmo Pregnancy magazine in the morning, and then I'd write a story for like a Clio Bridal magazine in the afternoon, and then I'd do a story for Dolly on how how not to have drunk sex, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> yep. in the night. So I would spend all my friends were still young and going out and partying, and so I had a lot of time to sit at home and just churn out freelance copy. Mm. So I became, I guess, you know, a lot of people's go-to as a freelance writer. And I think... And I think I've heard this from a lot of my friends too, that for some people, absolutely having a baby can kind of make you take a step back and reevaluate and think, oh, you know, maybe I don't want that as much anymore. And for others, it can really be a creative kind of motivator. So I felt really creative through all of my pregnancies. And, and after, I think I really felt like I had something to prove still. It kind of worked quite well for me in that I got myself, I got a lot more experience in a lot, a lot of different writing styles and proved that I could do more than just beauty, which I had done for such a long time. I didn't know anyone who'd had a baby really. 27 doesn't sound that young, but definitely in my circle, <laughs> I was the only one at that, at that point who was even contemplating how do I do this and this. And what did newborn freelance life look like? Did you take much time off or could you sort of not? No, I couldn't really. I just kept going. And you know, I think this all the time now when I have um, staff on maternity leave, I think it's such a pity that you can't just, you know, I feel like you need a few weeks to physically recover, but then they sleep a lot. <laughs> like, and then it's like later that you actually need the time. So, mm. you know, I, I gave myself a few weeks to recover and then I was quite happy to keep writing during that time or with him on the boob. All of my babies have been on the boob all the time. I was never very disciplined about feeds or anything. You and me both. So, yeah. So it kind of, you know, it worked out. I'm very much a, my parenting philosophy is whatever gets you through the night. And so that is, I think that worked well for me in terms of being able to continue to work. Probably wasn't all that articulate. 
I don't know how good my writing was at that time, but I kept doing it. Well, they kept coming back, so it must have been pretty good. So then you fall pregnant when your son Milo, I believe, is just about a year old. Were you still freelancing at that point? And what did life look like as a mother of two? I had actually just taken a part-time job at Shop Two Drop. So I took on a more permanent role. I was beauty and style director. And I think I was a few days a week. And so yet again, a few months in, I'm going into my new boss, my editor, and being like, so <laughs> I'm going to have to take a little break. Uh, I think I said to her, I'm going to need six weeks off. And my editor at the time was like, you can't. You just started. And I was like, yeah, but I'm going to have to. <laughs> <laughs> this is an holiday. <laughs> and the only reason that I went back so soon that time, I am all for long mat leave and I would have loved to have done it. It's just never worked out that way for me. I had just launched a magazine called Shop for Kids, which was the kids spin-off of Shop. And I'd, I'd launched it because we had the idea and I was the only person on the team who had a child. So I had edited it and it was really fun. And because it was so tiny, it was such a nothing magazine. You know, it was a one shot at the time and no one really paid it any attention. So we didn't have any focus groups and there was no kind of like, who's the demographic? I just made a magazine for me and my friends. So it was like keeping in mind that it's 2005. So it was like loads of skinny jeans for kids and slogan t-shirts and and funny little onesies and how to dress like, how to dress your child like Gwen Stefani's children. I wish I still had them because it was a real moment in time. <laughs> Bit of a uh, time capsule, I think, those magazines. Because of that, it felt really unique. You know, I wasn't being told it had to be for mums who lived in certain areas or, you know, it was a lot cooler than that. So I was so attached to it. We'd made something so unique, so fun. It was really fun to work on. We used, you know, all my friends' kids were just the the models and we had a ball doing it. And so I didn't want to let it go for the second issue. So, you know, it was successful and they said, oh, we'd love you to do another one. And then I was thinking, well, that timing will be exactly when I'm having this baby or, you know, just after. So I just want to find a way to make it work. And I think that's me in general, like I'm always the person who tries to cram too much into every holiday or too much into the weekend and then I wake up on Monday morning and I'm dead. I'd always rather sort of say yes and try to work it out than worry about, oh, what's the flight going to be like? Oh, those kind of questions. So I just said, I'm coming back in time to do it and I'll just work it out later. And um, I can't remember how we worked it out, but we, we obviously did. I took six weeks, I think, and then came straight back into the next issue of that. And you know, I think actually for me, I'm not somebody who can sit around and around the house. I kind of, I've got a very wired brain and I probably needed to put that energy into something or I would put it into parenting and that's probably not a good idea. <laughs> too much energy into the one thing. Yeah. I've been surprised to find myself like that too, because I think in the early postpartum, I was pretty slow. But then as soon as my son, I think started to perhaps get a little bit more, I don't know, mobile. I was sort of like, oh, no, I need something else. So I mm. totally understand that. And I ended up just feeling guilty that I've taken this year off, but I've ended up spending so much time on this project. So for some people, perhaps it is just better to go back to work and get that out because then when you're with your kids, you're with your kids. But you know, you just need to get used to the guilt because you will feel it no matter what you're doing for the rest of your life. True. There's no remedy just for that, is let, there? <laughs> let that be a feeling that you're just really comfortable with. <laughs> So your relationship with Adam ends when the boys are about three and one. You're busy professionally. You're a mother of two. What does the separation when there's kids involved do to an already really busy schedule in terms of the mental load? 
I mean, I think I thought I was busy then, but, you know, I was still kind of doing beauty and mag- making a magazine a couple of times a year. It wasn't crazy. I don't think I, maybe three days a week. So, and I have had always had a very, very good mother. Recently, my 10 year old said, I just really love Manny. You know, she pretty much raised us. And I was that is not true. If you saw what I went through, if you saw what I go through every day and every week, you will regret saying that. But she did pretty much raise them. I mean, she. Why do I let them listen to this? No, she's super involved. I mean, less so now. Obviously, as she's older and the kids are older. But she, at that time, when I had the two of them and they were little, and I still needed to establish a career, it was mm-hmm. incredible to have a mother who was prepared. So she would come and stay with us for three days a week, and then and give me that opportunity to kind of keep the job up. I don't think if I was at the point in my career that I'm at now where we sometimes are talking 14-hour days or, you know, I don't know that that would be possible. I would have maybe had to choose. But at that point mm-hmm. I was able to squeeze in both, which I feel so privileged and lucky to have been able to do. But, and, you know, and, and the other thing is that while separation and divorce and split parenting is heartbreaking I mean for me I at that time we did split weeks so the boys were only in preschool so we were able to do you know I had four he had three those three days were just so heartbreaking you know the house was so quiet it was so hard but what it enabled me to do a lot of the time was work more I think I spent probably three months walking around feeling sorry for myself in that time and probably drinking more wine than I want to admit (laughs) And then, then I suddenly clicked in. I was like, no, this is the time that you can, you can actually stay at work late if you need to, you know, rather than running out, creeping out the door at 4.30, you know, who's actually able to kind of do that properly. Or I could go out and see friends and feel like a young person again. Mm, when I'm me a- time, what's that? Yeah, exactly. So, and then that enables you that for the time when you're parenting to like really be a parent and, and to be really present, not really be a parent because we're all parents, of course. But be much more present and and to not be so distracted and and so it wasn't probably as hard. I think financially it was it was definitely hard, like paying crazy childcare fees as well and all of those kinds of things. And that's something to get used to when you're a single parent. But definitely in the end, I think I made it work for us. You seem like someone that just sort of gets through things too. I don't hear you. I know you just said that you were feeling sorry for yourself for a little bit, but that doesn't really seem your nature. It just seems like you're get through it, keep moving, keep going forward. I think ultimately I just want a lot. So I have to find a way to make it work. Like there's no point sitting around and moaning about it. Right now we're going through a process at Instar where we've moved from two to four issues a year because it was so, the first one was really successful. And that's kind of killing all of us a little bit. But ultimately... I know there's no point whinging about it because I'm so excited to make four issues a year, mm. you know, so I'm just one foot in front of the other. And so then you get married and you have your third son, but at the same time you're hearing whispers that your dream magazine is heading back to Australia, which is L Magazine. Can you tell us about this time in your life? There's some brilliant stories here that I've heard. Oh, yeah, I was pretty deranged. I had, <laughs> I mean, UKL was like, just the best magazine. Everybody loved UKL. It was really an incredible time for that magazine. And um, it inspired so many other mags and so many people working in magazines. And so it was all very kind of behind the scenes and complicated. But our company had a, a content deal with the company with Hearst that made L in 16 countries around the world, not all of them. So when that content deal was struck, 
I suddenly was like, well, obviously there's an in here for, for L, and it's probably likely that it will happen based off nothing except guesswork. And so I just started pretty much making the magazine. I just started kind of doing <laughs> these very long decks and proposals and just sending them to random people. So like my boss, but then also other publishers because no one knew who the publisher would be. <laughs> and and I just made it so I kind of thought I'll put it out there so much that I really want this, that everybody else will feel too, that they're stepping on my toes by either going for it because <laughs> I was friends with all the editors or the publishers, the bosses are going to feel so guilty because I've worked for them for so long now and I've done a very good job and I've given it my all. I've been really successful at it. So they'll kind of feel like they have to give it to me. I, <laughs> I just thought I just, I just keep talking about it so much like it was mine. And it took years. It took multiple versions of that deck and lots of help from lots of friends to design things for me and an interview process that went on and on. You know, it was a business that uh, the license came from Lagardère, which is based in Paris, but the um, joint venture was with Hearst in New York. So, you know, it was multiple countries, multiple people. And um, I, I think eventually I just kind of wore everybody down. It's, it, it's like, and now now when my children do that to me, I'm like, I wonder where you get it from. I know. It's funny, those traits in our kids that are like, oh, I sort of like that you like that, but can you do it to someone else? Yeah. But there's some great arm wearing down that you may have done at six weeks postpartum when you went to New York. I think you're on the ground for about 48 hours. You said you pumped for Australia to get to that trip. <laughs> um, well, I'd had, I'd had an interview and I don't, I don't think nothing went wrong, but it was a really big editorship. It was a big deal. And so they just didn't hand it to me on the spot. And, you know, I was sitting, it was really hot. It was summer and I had Scout, who's now 10. I had mastitis and, you know, just this whole, everything was just a mess. And I just knew that I needed this job. And my, one of my very, very best friends, Bronwyn McCann, was the editor of Cosmo at the time. And every year we used to go to New York Fashion Week. We'd go together, you know, we'd somehow always be on this trip together. And it was coming up to that time and she was still going. And then suddenly I was just like, go. The people I needed to win over were in New York. She had access to them because Cosmo was part of Hearst. I wouldn't have normally had access to them at shop because we weren't an international title. But I was like, I don't know who at shop I kicked off the trip so that I could go. <laughs> I was like, okay, I just need to make, I need to make this happen. So I pumped and pumped and pumped and pumped. And, you know, luckily I've always had a crazy oversupply, probably because I like overly pump in the early days, but I pumped enough. And then, and I got on the plane and I just went for two days and I just sort of, I was just like, Bron, I'll do what I have to do for my job, but also I'm just going to come with you to your job. <laughs> I'm just going to like be this annoying person hanging around the team who are making this decision and going to your dinners. Yeah. And What a supportive brand. That's the ultimate display of friendship. Yep. Come with me. Well, it was actually more than that because then, because I'd pumped so much in the lead up and, and I already had an oversupply. So I only had to go 15 minutes and I'd start leaking. So everywhere we went right. in New York. We were just popping into change rooms and she would have to like pretend to be pulling me clothes from the rest of the store while I changed. I like <laughs> frantically used a hand pump in the, in the change rooms and then pour it down the drain in New York, like in the middle of Broadway, there'd be like us just like pouring this like liquid gold down the drain. It was so, so depressing. Um, and I tried to, I tried to donate it, but that's quite a process and I didn't have enough time to go through it. So um, it was very sad, but I don't know whether it was that I charmed them or they just sort of went, 
oh my God, anyone this desperate is going to give it everything yeah. she's got. You can't <laughs> give it to someone that wants it less than this. <laughs> Maybe that was just impressed with my words. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So that, you know, that's kind of what got me the job in the end. Amazing. So you had to travel a lot for work. There were obviously some high highs and some low lows of this as a parent. But firstly, what was the most memorable fashion show you ever went to anywhere in the world? Oh, there's so much about Fashion Week that is a weird experience and and so memorable. I look, of course, any Chanel or Dior show, particularly the Chanel shows where they, you know, they turn the Grand Palais into a completely different experience every time. So I was there for the big shopping center one that was quite famous where they had just ah. aisle and aisle. It was like being in a gigantic, like an airport hangar that was part Bunnings, part Woolies, part like it was just, you know, part deli. So beautifully done with all the product kind of themed to the the icons of the house. That was amazing. There were there are so many, but it, it's also just being there in general. There are moments that were maybe not as spectacular or as spectacular in that very showy sense, but you know, shows like Dries Van Noten shows or Valentino shows where, you know, you could be brought to tears just from the beauty of the moment, what you were seeing. Mm. It's so inspiring to be there. And and also weirdly kind of um, village-like because you're in this big city, but like everyone you know is there. And so you're just walking along and you could be at Bondi because you bump into so many people you know from home. And that just the whole experience of it is pretty mm-hmm. amazing. But really hard for Australia, you're, we would tend to miss New York because it makes it too long. So Paris and, and Milan are where all the advertisers are. We, we would miss London as well because it was just, just too much time away. So you, you'd end up being away three weeks in total. And Three weeks is such a long time to be away from children. Mm. So you'd start out with lots of energy and then by the end, self and the other editors who also had children, you know, we'd be, you'd see a baby on the street and just burst into tears and you have to pull it together to go to like, you go to events all day, to shows all day, then you usually have a dinner and that would start very late and then you'd have to edit the magazine remotely through the night and then FaceTime your children in the morning. So you're working on very little sleep and the emotions are really Mm. high. Then you get on the plane and the altitude does it to you. And like there was always just, I would just cry for 24 hours on the way home. So desperate to get there by the end of it, I can imagine. Totally. You know, never ever you had a delayed flight or anything, it was just like so hard to deal with. So it was very glamorous on on one hand, but the reality of it was also that, you know, Mm. and like any any parent who works, everything you have to organize in the lead up and like someone to take them to different sports or like art class or whatever that is. Like it's so much. Yeah, the emotions are one part of it, but there's actually logistics that you're hoping are working in the way that you imagine they are too. Yes. And at some point you also just have to switch off and assume that the people who are looking after your children, who are generally their father and their grandmother yeah. or you know, whatever it is, that they've got it under control and maybe they won't do it in exactly the same way that you would do it. But like, that's okay. They're alive. Why do you think we always ask the mum who's looking after the kids when the mum goes away? Well, I know that I will never ask that ever. <laughs> you know, um, I think, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've got friends who still to this day will leave laminated instructions for their husbands on how to look after their kids for a weekend. I just went away with my sister. It was the first time she hadn't had a night off from her kids in 11 years. I, I know that I, that happens and it's admirable in so many ways, but also if it can't happen that way, then I think we do have to kind of let go a little bit. And for me, actually, having broken up with the father of my children at an early stage Mm. made me realise, you know, I used to send like little notes in the bag at the beginning. I'd be like, 
only sun-dried or natural-dried sultanas, you know, no sulfur-dried. <laughs> and, and then you realise that people are laughing at you. You look ridiculous. And they're coming back and they've been loved and they've been fed and they've been looked after. That There's an element of letting go that happens that is, I think, really healthy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got into the habit of if I had a work trip and I'd worked out that it worked for our family, then I just went. I didn't do too much. I think, you know, you have to do a lot of, there are the logistical sides of things that are just being a human in a family, but it wasn't particular because I was the mother. Mm-hmm. It's not like, okay, now I have to figure out literally every pick up and drop off. Like they're or like too. filling I'm the just fridge not with. Be here for five days. Exactly. Filling the fridge with meals. Like, yeah. I mean, even now I don't do that if I'm leaving the teenagers away for a weekend. I think it's a great skill to be able to pull that stuff together yourself. Mm-hmm. It's actually a really interesting reflection too. While obviously there would have been some really hard parts of separation, it maybe taught you things about letting go that other mothers may not have been through yet. Absolutely. And I am a control freak. You know, I know that about myself. And so I I think that was an important lesson for me to learn. Mm. Definitely. Four boys. Amazing. I know people <laughs> probably say, how do you do it? Which I'm not going to ask you how you do it. But <laughs> what does life look like for you as a mother of four? So Odie came into the world in 2019, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yep. He turns four in a couple of days. Amazing. So what's life like now with your, with four kids? Um, you know what? I mean, I've said before that it feels like we have two flatmates and two two kids. So, um, you know, my older kids are eighteen and sixteen, and I lucked out so hard with them. Like they are just, and part of that, I think, I suspect, can't say for sure, but I think part of that is single parenthood mm. that it makes you, particularly with boys, we are particularly close. They are particularly open with me. I don't know, we just have a, a, a relationship that's sort of not just mother-child but also I would never say friend, it's not that at all, but I don't know, there's just there's a level of understanding and, and intimacy to it that's really special. So that's another thing that I often will say to people who are in the midst of a breakup that actually I think it adds a really lovely layer to your parenting, to, to that relationship. But my boys, yeah, the older boys, you know, they're so helpful and they're so great to have around so it can it can look crazy absolutely like I'm not going to ever turn this laptop around so you can see what's on the other side of (laughs) this screen because it was a crazy morning of trying to organize a four-year-old birthday party in one day because I used to do very elaborate parties for the older boys and Odie has never had anything and I just got the guilt this morning and was like let's do something on Sunday (laughs) um so there, there is the crazy side of it. We always have family dinner together. That's like a non-negotiable. I mean, of course, people can have plans, but generally, you know, there's no one who's like eating dinner in front of a laptop in this house or while they're watching YouTube or anything, which does happen with a lot of their friends, I know. And, you know, so those moments are kind of loud and messy and, and all of that. But then also I have I have someone who can go to daycare pickup for me. He's doing it twice this week, you know, <laughs> one of my older sons. I they cook dinner I've been getting I've been getting this is not a plug at all but I've been getting Marley spoon delivered and my 18 year old is like super into learning chopping skills right now and so he's so excited because he picks the Marley spoon recipes and then can cook dinner and he's learning all of these new skills so that when he's ready to go off in the world next year he feels prepared so there are moments of it that are crazy and moments of it that are really really lovely my one thing that's really been playing on my mind is that because of the age gap that we have, my 10-year-old will be in high, he'll be in year 12 when my youngest is in year six. 
So Odie's entire high school career will just be him at home with two parents when he comes from this crazy family of four. So even now I'm kind of like anticipating, like, how do we make his life more interesting? Because that sounds boring. And I'll be old. I'm already the old parent. So I'm like, how, you know, do we have to go traveling for two years or something? Like, what is it that we do to, to kind of give him like a nutty life again? Because I don't, I don't know that I like the sound of like that poor kid coming home to just us. <laughs> I'm sure the big brothers will come over and make it interesting again. And I love I what so. you've said about your oldest doing, you know, the cooking and doing daycare picks up, pickups because instead of feeling the guilt that some mothers might feel of, oh, my God, my kids have to chip in, it's like you're teaching them these incredible life lessons of what it is to be a productive family member and maybe a productive father one day. Absolutely. Like all of them, you know, my 16-year-old came out the other day and was like, oh, yeah. And I said, what? He said, I just had to wipe out his bum and it was disgusting. I'm like, wow. I didn't ask you to do that. You know, you just happened to be there when he said he was going to the toilet. Like that is, I think that's so cool that they have those skills and they know that that's normal and there's nothing icky about life for them. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do complain. They're like, can't wait till he stops dropping food on the floor and gets an outer. <laughs> you know, and, and of course, he, you know, he annoys, the little ones annoy the big ones and vice versa. But I think, you know, I love a big family. My favourite movie ever is The Family Stone and that, you know, the Christmas with all of them coming home, I can't wait to be that, which I guess means I also can't wait for them all to all be gone. <laughs> I don't have to hide that. <laughs> you know, I've been oh, parenting for a, for a long time. <laughs> but, yes, no, I, I think it's it's really beautiful to have that mix of ages. Mm, I love that. And then I'm so jealous as well of my friends who've got very, who've got no age gaps and then I think, oh, my God, you do like seven hard years and you are in easy street. Mm. So, yeah, you're doing all different types of parenting at once, aren't you? Yeah, exactly. It seems to suit your personality. I can tell that you can handle a lot. So <laughs> I think it'd be really fun being at your house at dinner time. So you said in an interview, I think it was with Mia Friedman, that your dream job was Elle until all of a sudden it wasn't. What role did motherhood play in that, do you think? It played somewhat of a role, probably not as much as you would think. It was more growing up. The difference for me was that I'd wanted to be the editor of Elle my entire youth, you know, from when I was about 15 through all of my 20s and and then into my 30s. And then I turned 40 and you're a very different person. 14-year-old me, 40-year-old me, very different people with different priorities, different agendas, different things that I think are exciting. So yes, motherhood played a role because, you know, there was some travel that I didn't necessarily want to do anymore because it was getting too hard. Um, all of that was also because I, you know, had a new husband who I was in love with and I wanted to be at home. <laughs> but, you know, it was more about just growing up as a person in general and feeling a shift in, in what was important to me. And suddenly the amount that I was working for the company that I was working for didn't make sense to me anymore. If, you know, mm. if I'm going to put this much into something and take that time away from my children, take that time away that matters to them, then I want it to be for something more worthwhile. And the company wasn't, wasn't doing that for me. So, you know, even now I'm still, I'm still really happy to work hard. I never stopped working hard. I wasn't taking, it wasn't that my career was in any way kind of, I feel like both of them, like I prioritize motherhood as much as I can. I prioritize my career as much as I can. I couldn't say one ever wins up from the other, but I definitely felt like the time was just right for me to to look at my priorities and to look at where I was spending my time and how I was spending it and also think about what that looked like in five years and in 10 years. Like is where I was going if I stayed there, was that going to be 
the same place that I wanted to be. Mm. And when I sat there and I looked at it that way, I thought it really didn't. It wasn't that they were not going to coincide at all. Sometimes when we have a change of heart or a change in direction, we can feel guilty because there's something we loved and wanted so much and then we get it and we're wondering why we don't want it. Was there any of that guilt in identity shift? Did you hold on to that for long or were you just able to be like, no, this isn't for you anymore? No, I definitely, I, and it was really unexpected. It wasn't guilt for me, but it was definitely like an identity crisis. I didn't Mm. know who I was without this goal, without um, having the title to my name. I was very kind of, uh, I felt really lost and really insecure. And I didn't expect that because I was this woman who I live in the Northern beaches. I've got friends who are out of the industry. I had a relationship I was really happy with, and I had four children. Like in no way would I have ever said that I was one of those fashion people whose identities were super caught up in the industry. I was so wrong. (laughs) I was like, you know, I was really, I, I was bereft without the goal and without that being part of my life. And so I actually got some help. I got a, an amazing career coach, someone who spends a lot of time with CEOs who retire or athletes who retire and don't quite know what to do with themselves. And she kind of just helped me work out like what the rest of my life looked like, like 40. I'd already been in, in the industry for like 23 years, but I was very stuck on like, oh, that's the end. And she was like, you've got 20 years of this left. Like, mm-hmm. You know, you've really, you've got to work out what it is you want. You need your new goal. You need your new path. My definition of success for the first half of my life is incredibly different to the one that we defined together for the second half. That's such a great strategy. So I have two more questions for you before I let you go. It seems I have the same obsession with Bluey and Chili Healer as you do. It's pretty much the only thing I have on in the background. My son actually really doesn't need TV yet. He's only 10 months old, but (laughs) I think I just put it on because I love hearing Chili's bits of wisdom. You put Chili Healer on the digital cover of your February issue and I read your cover letter and I loved it or your editor's letter. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, yes, I'm obsessed with Bluey and my son is kind of growing out of it and it is devastating. I think all of us will sit around watching it. He would go to bed and like the teenagers and me and my husband would sit around still watching. It's such a unique and clever show and so relatable and like so many episodes that would have me in tears or make me feel really seen, like with everyone. And with what I do in the magazine, I'm just always trying to, I feel like the team banned me from using the word zeitgeist because I definitely overuse it. It's always about us being part of what's happening in the culture. And I'm always looking at anything and thinking like, how can I make this relevant to us? Is there a story in this that works for InStyle? And so I'd wanted to do something with Bluey for a long time and I had never quite worked out what that would look like. And I knew that a few years back when it first launched, you know, Bandit had won Father of the Year. And I know that we love Bandit because, yes, he completely switched up the media portrayal of the dumb dad. And I think that's excellent. Chili's evolution through the show has been really interesting because she was almost like just a bit player at the beginning. And I think now she's become such a, a significantly unique portrayal of motherhood, of modern motherhood, in that she is really open about her fears of failing, like we all are. She feels guilty. She gets exasperated and she needs 20 minutes away from her kids. Like, you know, me too. You know, it's just, I think that you don't really see that in in anything, not even in non-cartoon shows, non-kids shows, but, you know, you just don't sort of see a very real portrayal. So I wanted to celebrate her as a mother. And then I'd been thinking a lot about, well, originally I wanted to put her in 
new season fashion and Ludo Studios, who make Bluey, were very much like, no. <laughs> you can't do One that. step too far. <laughs> I'm thinking just a little Christopher Ed the dress. No, no. But they were really open to doing something. So I was thinking of other ideas. And then I've become, you know, quite obsessed lately with this idea that we're living through this thing called the great exhaustion, where we've come out of the pandemic and we've gone back into real life. And we are so physically tired and emotionally exhausted and we're dealing with a whole new world, but in many ways, a world that hasn't quite caught up quick enough. For mothers, you know, a lot of people have been forced back into full-time work before they were ready. Or, you know, just as we've got used to being able to throw on a quick load of laundry, suddenly now we're doing the commute again. And people are just done. We've been through a lot and we're just like really, really tired and mothers more than anyone. And we know how hard mothers were hit by the pandemic in terms of job security, long-term financial security, took on more emotional labor, more of the homeschooling, all of that stuff. So it's been a very tough time for mothers. And and so I just thought that it would be a lovely way to celebrate Chile by putting her on the cover, celebrate mothers in general. And because it was our Australian icons issue, ha- issue have her kind of recreating the Sun Baker, which is a you know a famous Australian photograph of a man lying on the beach, and so to have Chili lying there on the beach, just taking a moment, taking her twenty minutes for herself, being kind of I guess revived by the power of nature and of the sun. Although she was wearing SPF fifty, I just need to remind everyone the of modern that. day woman. <laughs> and not you like know, our nuns. <laughs> I thought that was really lovely and a lovely kind of moment and I I think I thought it would be just something that we would put out and it often a lot you know when you've been in an industry for 30 years sometimes a lot of what I do is just me entertaining myself but I think I'm a pretty average Jill in that way where what entertains me can entertain a lot of people and um I wasn't expecting quite the reaction that it had but it's been really lovely and that shows the power of that show I mean the fact that American kids are walking around with Australian accents now blows my mind Oh, I love that. It's so much better than hearing little kids with a British Peppa Pig accent. I'll take the Australian twang any day of the week over Don't, that silly show. Do not talk to me about those. I'm always bitching about the bourgeois pigs. Oh. I can't stand them. <laughs> I hate it. I was actually just in the kitchen the other day at home with my son and in the background I heard Chili say to the girls, they said, uh, does that mean I failed mum school? And she goes, yeah, but we all fail mum school sometimes. And I was like, it got yeah. me right in the heart. Oh, and baby race. And there's the one, I can't remember what it's called, but the episode about going to bed where it must be bingo and she's trying to go to sleep and she's dreaming of all the different planets and, and her dad's there and her brother's, uh, her sister's there. And then at the end, it's just her mum coming in like the sun. And I just like, it gets me every time. Oh, you've actually just made me think of one more that I have to share, which is when they're going through the episode of, I think it's Bluey learning to walk. And oh. She says, Baby why race. did I walk in the kitchen? And she says, oh, I wonder what made her walk or something. She goes, she must have seen something she really wanted and it's the mum oh. and I can actually cry right now. I know, <laughs> I know. And also the other one that gets me while we're on a blue run is Grandad, where they're, you know, they're chasing around after the granddad at the end and she's like, that was a long time ago. And her dad, yeah. I'm crying now. Yeah, and her oh, dad is like, response. it was just yesterday. And I, oh. Oh, no. <laughs> at the end of the pier, far out, that gets me so good. That's yeah. a more question for you, and I nearly forgot to ask it. I hope everyone enjoys Bluey as much as us, otherwise the last <laughs> 10 minutes might be a bit boy. Um, and that is that you wrote a book amongst all of this. Tell us a bit about your book from the logistical point of view of trying to write a book amongst everything else you were doing, but then also just from the creative point of view of doing that. 
Well, I signed a book deal when I first left Elle and um, I'd had this idea in my head that it would be sort of like we've been talking about, you know, pop culture applied to real life, more more essay based. Um, and I think the publisher was quite keen on it feeling a bit magazine memoir-y and, and I wasn't, I was pushing back on that. But then I, I don't sleep very well. I should probably don't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one ever sleeps well after they have kids. It's gone forever. And I sort of thought, oh, this will be a good thing to do when I've got insomnia. You know, like I'll just get up and I'll start tapping. <laughs> And, you know, I was pregnant. I just left a job. I'd started a new job that I was finding really hard, like just learning, you know, Googling like terms under the table that I didn't know, which is, you know, pretty tough at 40. And so all this time that I thought I would be able to spend writing the book didn't eventuate. You know, I just having a baby at being pregnant at 42 is very different to having to being pregnant at 27. So physically I was more tired. I was more achy, getting used to this new role. So I think that the deadline, I think it was six months time, it came and went and I hadn't written one word. And so I wrote to him, I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm so sorry. I'll give you back the money. <laughs> they were like, oh, we'll give you more time. And I think that happened three times and I hadn't written anything. And so then, then actually with my career coach who I had started speaking to and I told her I'd had this book down, she's also written books and she was like, you're an idiot. You're thinking that you just have to do this all by yourself. But actually mm. you've got this wonderful publishing company in Allen and Umland and all these experts there, just get something written and then hand it over and they'll tell you what you have to do next. Like even if you're not completely satisfied with it, just do the mm. doing. The doing is what matters. Yeah, you were used to being the editor. So then you were told yeah. the same. Yes. And I, you know, I would write one sentence and rewrite it 15 times because that's how I, you know, that's what I do for a living <laughs> rather than just like getting the word count down. So I did that in the end. And I started just like, I'd have my laptop with, you know, in the middle of the lounge room with kids everywhere. And it was not conducive. It was like not the what I imagined my first novel would be at all. It was, I, I wrote a book and I'm not joking. I would take it to the toilet with me. I'd like sit on the loo and write on the toilet. I'd write in the car when my husband was driving somewhere. We did a road trip around America and I like had it with me and I'd be like writing in the car and I just got it down. And, you know, definitely took a few goes of like, I would rearrange it a couple of times based on feedback. It definitely wasn't something that I handed in and was perfect, which was a weird feeling for me, but it was the doing that is what mattered. And and yeah, and so, look, no one who's listening needs to get the book because we've talked about it all here today. <laughs> but it did end up being a lot more memoir than I had intended, probably just because that's what I was able to write at the time. And I was also going through going through my own processes. I was entering this, you know, very much feel like I was in Act 1 or 2 of my life and I was entering Act 3. And... So it was almost a cathartic experience for me to kind of get down what was going on. And also another thing is that I'm so obsessed with dementia and like this idea that I'm, you know, that you realise how much you forget, you know. Mm -hmm. I watched a home movie recently of a, and there was a boy in it who was a date at a family function and I didn't even, could not tell you who he was to save my life. Like this is from like 30 years ago. So Oh, I feel I'm really like you're talking straight to my soul. I've got very <laughs> bad memory too. I do not sleep well and my mind is as busy as it was. <laughs> well, I've been, re- I've been listening. I don't know if you listen to Tim Ferriss, but he's had a big sleep expert in recently and they were talking about how the number one indicator for Alzheimer's is bad sleep patterns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. I've been, so I, I think for, for mothers, that's something that we really need to be talking about more because mm-hmm. how do you ever get good sleep? 
And I'm, I know I'm becoming more and more vague. My husband's always rolling his eyes at me because, you know, we got halfway to Mardi Gras the other day and I realized I'd forgotten the keys to the car park. Like, all the, you know, <laughs> so th- these are the things that happen to us when we've got full brains and lots to think about and lots of moving parts in our lives. Um, mm. So it was a nice experience to kind of think, okay, well, maybe this is the part where I get down this first half and I kind of can, there's less pressure on me to remember all of that now because because I got it down. So, well, it wasn't the book that I intended to write. It was definitely, I think, the book that I was meant to write at that time. It's such a great book. I said to you that it's a bit of an identity crisis for me that I haven't finished it yet because before becoming a parent, I would have absolutely plowed through it. But it's called Demigloss and I imagine it's still available very widely for anyone that does want to read it. Justine, I've absolutely loved hearing your story. Where else can we find you and your work online? Well, in style, in styleaustralia.com.au is where my life's work is going right now. We also have, we have a couple of interesting launches this year that are probably perfect for your audience, but I can't reveal much yet. Definitely speaking to mothers. And so that, that, that will all be coming out soon. But you know, I'm always you know, on Instagram, regrettably. <laughs> you said that with such vigor. I can tell there's a real social strategy around your Instagram account with the way you said that. <laughs> Like tortured. <laughs> well, I've absolutely loved hearing your story. It's been so colourful, both your personal and your professional life. And I think a lot of people will take a lot out of it. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you for listening to my rambling. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. That's it for today. We'll see you next time.